0: 42 credit hours in 12 months. People are tired when they're done, but they're well prepared for what God has for them next. Many people are looking for just such an opportunity to train, but they don't want to take their whole lives to do it. As Doug Bookman, who has been reverently uh, uh, mentioned already today... He likes to say that the number one thing that people want out of seminary is out of seminary. So uh, we get them in and out in 12 months in our one-year program. And we're also offering this in Bryan, Texas. And then we have teaching sites in Savannah, Georgia. And one that's opening just in the Tampa Bay area of Florida. Uh, We enjoy also reaching out to pastors and church leaders those who are involved in the ministry of the local church and around the world, and we have a conference each October. This year's conference theme is on differences that exist between believers and how we can interact and relate to the fact that not all of us are quite the same as the next person and not every church is going to be quite the same local church that you find in the next town over, but how do we work together within the body of Christ and how do we acknowledge God's truth in the midst of what can be a confusing environment. We're grateful that our 360 conference has reached over 800 church leaders and that's just expanding every year. Feel free to visit our website for the conference, which is shepherds360.org, especially if you get bored during the message, you know, it's an easy place to go. You'll see all kinds of amazing speakers there. And no, I'm not really encouraging you to do that, but please do check out the seminary at shepherds.edu as well as our conference at shepherds360.org. Well, I'd like to turn your attention to God's word this morning as we look at a text in Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11 is our text as we consider this theme grafted in. Bernice and I, along with our three children, have the privilege, most summers, apart from this past year with COVID, of living in Israel and serving among many Jewish people who know and love Jesus as their Messiah. It's been fascinating that already since we arrived on Friday, we've met at least two Jewish believers in Jesus. And I thought... That's exactly what I'm speaking about from Romans chapter 11, which Paul wrote about many years ago to remind us that God is still preserving a remnant of saved Jewish people even today. Many people think perhaps that, you know, they take John 1 a bit out of context, that he came to his own and his own received him not, and they stop reading right there and say, I guess Jewish people don't believe in Jesus can I encourage you that many do and that not only are you looking at one now but also I can introduce you to some who are sitting in your midst today God is still at work among the Jewish people to bring them to saving faith in the Messiah his son and this is exactly what Paul wanted a bunch of Romans who would have been Gentiles to hear about So that they could be a part of what God is doing in the world, even among Jewish people. Take a look at me, uh, with me at this text in Romans chapter eleven. As Paul begins, he says, "I ask then, has God rejected His people?" Paul often will begin some of his arguments in this book with a question, just like he does here. The question is quite clear: Has God rejected His people? And just like he opens with a similar question twice in Romans chapter 6, he answers the question here with the strongest way to say no in the Greek language. He uses a phrase in Greek that is not simply a no, or as some English translations will say, by no means, or perhaps you could update that and say, no way. Uh, No, he uses a term or a phrase that means, may it never even begin to begin that you would think that. In fact, the Greek is quite clear, and you actually will recognize this Greek root word when he says, me genoito. The me is the negation, so that's the not part, but genoito is the word from which we get the word Genesis. In other words, as Paul answers his question, has God rejected his people? Meganoito. May it never even begin to begin. May it never even genesis in your mind that God has rejected his people. What would you do with all of those promises in scripture about God's plan to save the Jewish people? To rescue them, to bring them back from exile, to promise them the Messiah, to give them, in fact, a new covenant, and everlasting life. What would you do with all of these promises in Scripture if God's plan was to simply reject his people? Think about this for a moment. I love the quote that I once read in a commentary on the book of Judges. Of course, the book of Judges is about a terrible time in Israel's history when everyone was doing that which was right in their own eyes. They were turning after other gods and serving them. They were uh, turning to the enemies and worshipping their false deities and so forth. They were involving themselves in all sorts of paganism. Daniel Block, in his commentary on the book of Judges, put it like this. What we should have seen as Israel entered the land was the Israelization of the land of Canaan. But what we saw was the Canaanization of Israel. Yes, Israel adopted the pagan practices, turned after other gods, and served them instead of serving their one true God. And so often, as we would read the Old Testament, we might be tempted to think, wow, yeah, Israel, you know, could have done it a lot better. Israel uh, should not have turned after those other gods and served them. And we might be guilty of that which your mother may have warned you against in your childhood, pointing those fingers at others and looking at their failures and, and forget to realize that whenever you do, there are three fingers pointing back at you. I mean, let's look at the history of the church. What we should have seen in the history of the church, the book of Acts, should have been the gospel spreading from Jerusalem, Judea, samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth and god's gospel spreading and god's people growing and paying attention to the apostles doctrine but if you study much of church history very much like you would study much of israel's history you find one heresy after another one scandal after another one sad time of disobedience after another thankfully some revivals thankfully a reformation thankfully some good news here and there But much of what calls itself Christendom today is sadly misguided, very much like you would find among God's people in the First Testament, sadly misguided. And so one could ask the question, even of God's promises to the church today, has God rejected his people, Jews and Gentiles in the church today? Thankfully, as you even look at your own life, you might be tempted to ask the question, (laughs) have I blown it? Has God rejected me? Thankfully, the scriptures teach us time and time again in passages like 1 John 1 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Very much like God's patience with his people Israel, God is patient with us today. And perhaps that's one more reason why Gentile believers in Rome and gentile believers right here today need to thank god that god is the one who is faithful to his promises to israel god is the one who is faithful in the midst of their unfaithfulness and god is the one who is faithful in the midst of our unfaithfulness god is the one who is true to his word and he preserves a remnant of faithful ones in this passage specifically speaking of the faithful in israel In fact, as we would begin to follow Paul's argument in this passage, we would note the preservation of a remnant in Israel is the focus of our first ten verses, where Paul uses himself as exhibit A. Look with me in verse 1. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. And we would have to say... Hey, if you know what tribe you are, and you know your family lineage, uh, that's pretty Jewish. It's authentic. I mean, Paul knew uh, that he himself was an Israelite. Therefore, he goes on to say in verse 2, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left and they seek my life? I wonder if some of you have had what has often been called the Elijah syndrome, where you have thought, am I the only person in my class who is a believer in Jesus Am I the only person at my workplace who knows you and loves you? Am I the only person on this committee in your given local church that really wants to do the will of God? Perhaps you've suffered from the Elijah syndrome. And I hope, if you've asked those questions, the Lord in his patient grace has let you know you're not alone. Perhaps he's encouraged you with a classmate, with a coworker, with a friend that you're eventually introduced to, and you realize, hey, I'm not all alone here. We're reminded here that God did the same for Elijah. We read in verse 4, but what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Paul goes on to say in verse 5, so too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. This concept of a remnant is a word that is used actually twice in these chapters of Romans 9 through 11 that speak about God's plan for salvation among Jews and Gentiles. It's a word that is already used in the Old Testament a number of times to speak of, in spite of the nation's overwhelming disobedience, in spite of the nation's overwhelming apostasy, idolatry, paganism, God always preserves those who have not bowed the knee to Baal. He's preserved a remnant. The word remnant speaks of a small piece of something uh, as a reminder of the whole. When my wife and I were newly married, we bought our first furniture for our living room. And as we did, you know, we're, we're learning how to decorate our home and we're thinking about not wanting to make too many mismatched choices of the free furniture that we could afford. And so we're wondering, I wonder if this would be a good idea to put this additional piece in our living room. Will it, will it match? Will it go well with the color scheme? And so we began to... Uh, look under the couch and we could find a little piece of material that was attached and we could pull that off and we would take it with us when we would go shopping for various things and we might use that little color swatch as an example of what could go with our color scheme this allowed us not to have to take the whole couch or a cushion from the couch it's just a little remnant a reminder that the whole couch is sitting there in the living room and this little swatch I could put in my pocket and we could take it with us to be reminded of the whole. In a similar way, the remnant, the one or two Jewish people sitting in this audience are a reminder that God is not finished saving Jewish people even today and this should be celebrated. Paul goes on to say, in verse 5, so too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, verse 6, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. This is a key theme in Paul's teaching on the gospel, that we are never saved by attempting to please God in our own righteousness. We could attempt and try and, 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 and strive. We could, we could hope. We could try to work. We could try to be better and better people, but that will never remove the sin problem. The way that God saves us always and only by His grace, through faith are you saved. And even the faith to believe is not that which comes from within. It is a gift from God, Paul tells us, in Ephesians chapter 2. When salvation is by grace, Paul says here, then it's no longer on the basis of works. I remember being told about a local church that had a certain way that they greeted their newcomers when they came in. I especially was reminded of this when I asked about your assembly and and some questions about, you know, like what translation should I preach from? And should I wear a tie and a suit coat and so forth? And, and then I, and I looked on your website just to make sure that Ken wasn't pointing me in the wrong direction. And I, w- I was reminded of a church in the Chicagoland area where they had a suit room. If you came in without a suit, they gave you one. And they had multiple sizes, you know. They probably got from some thrift store. But, you know, you weren't getting into the worship service unless you had your suit on. And I thought, well, that's very welcoming. And uh, uh, here we go. You know, the message was pretty clear. Unless you try real hard to fit in, you don't belong here. Friends, the gospel is not about you trying hard to fit in with God. The gospel is about what God has done for you to allow you to be accepted by him. He gave his son to die in your place, a death you could not die, to gain eternal life that you and I do not deserve. Friends, this is the gospel message, and it is a message by God's grace, not on the basis of good deeds and works that we could do, verse 6 tells us. Paul goes on in verse 7, to ask another question. He said, what then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. And yet the elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they would not see and ears that they would not hear. Down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Now, let's stop there for a moment. Paul is here quoting from some of the various curses that were spoken to Israel even before they entered the promised land many of these communications from the Lord were very clear through Moses that if you obey there will be blessings but if you disobey in the land where I'm taking you there will be curses and just like God is using you Israel to drive out the pagans from the promised land and to Cause the false worship of these idols to cease and cleanse the land from its idolatry. If you turn to the same idolatry, God will remove you from the land in the same way. And so there were these blessings to be enjoyed and curses to avoid. Some of these curses are already mentioned here in our passage, but we might ask the question that Paul asks in verse 11. He says, So I asked, did they stumble in order that they might fall? You notice the difference between stumbling and falling. I remember shoveling snow when we lived in the Chicagoland area. And on one particular day, there I was with a shovel and, you know, all of my coat and gloves and hat and so forth, shoveling some snow. And I took one. Little turn the wrong way and down I went. Really hard, flat on my back. I mean, I just lay there for a little while to collect myself and to think, how am I doing? You know, before I jump up, uh, not wanting the neighbors to notice what I had just done. Uh, let me let me just take a little assessment. Uh, is anything broken? Uh, can I even think straight? If I get up, will I be able to stay standing up? Uh, That's one nice thing about living here in the South. Not a lot of snow shoveling. But you still could fall. Um, I felt hard that day. I was all the way down. I prefer a little stumble. Like coming down the stairway at the Bixby's home the other day. That last step, uh, it blended right in with the hardwood floors. And I went right over it. Thankfully, you know... I'm not going to reenact that scene for my own uh, preservation of some dignity this morning, but it was impressive. Uh, I made it. I, I stayed up, but I stumbled for sure, and, and they could hear me in the other room. Uh, stumbling versus falling is a whole different thing, and Paul asked the question here. So I asked, verse 11, did they stumble in order that they might fall? And guess what he says in answer to this question? His favorite answer in the book of Romans, he says, by no means, or no way, or may it never even begin to begin that you would think that. God's purpose in allowing Israel to stumble over the gospel, which he predicted they would do, this was not... An accident. This was not a surprise to the Lord. This was his plan all along, and we'll see why this was his plan. That Israel would overwhelmingly, nationally, as a nation, reject the gospel and therefore stumble over the stumbling stone. They would meet the Messiah, but not really recognize the Messiah. And this, spiritually speaking, was a stumble. But God's plan was never that Israel nationally ultimately would fall. Fall and not get up. Fall and never believe. Fall and never receive the promises that he had given to the nation from the moment he chose them. Genesis chapter 12 and verse 3 tells us that God's plan for Abram and his descendants was not to curse them, but to bless them. In fact, he said, Abram, I'm going to bless you and through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. How would God bless all the families of the earth? In other words, all the Gentile nations. Well, we learn later that it would be through causing Israel to, at least for a time, stumble so that the gospel might spread to the Gentiles. And we learn about that next. We see here that when we speak about the preservation of a remnant within Israel, we're speaking about believing Jewish people like Paul himself, like the prophets of Elijah's day, and like people today who are Jewish who still compose a saved remnant in the nation. Twice in these chapters... Paul speaks about how a remnant will be saved. Romans 9, 27, this word remnant is used. Romans 11, verse 5, the word remnant is used. Because one day there is going to be a final call when the Messiah comes to his own and his own will receive him and in fact, worship him. We also go on to read about the purpose of unbelief in Israel. How that God's purpose for unbelief in Israel is so that salvation would go to the Gentiles. We read about this in these verses, verses 11 through 15. Look with me, first of all, at verse 11. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, Paul goes on with his answer here, through their trespass, which, by the way, is another walking related term. Do you notice know, stumble? something you could do while you're walking. But also crossing a line, trespassing, going, crossing over the line. Trespassing is a word for, uh, one of the many words for sin and its consequences in the Hebrew Scriptures. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. By the way, the very mention of Gentiles in this epistle to the Romans... Helps people perhaps tune back in. And maybe it will help you tune back in, too, because whether you know it or not, if you're not Jewish, then you fall into one other category. (laughs) Gentile. I mean, ethnically speaking. I like to say that Scripture is very clear that the Jewish people are the chosen people in Scripture. But God did not choose the Jewish people because he only loved Jewish people. Right there in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, when he narrowed down his salvation plan to work through one man in his family, Abram, he tells us exactly why he's doing this so that through Abram and his family, God would bring salvation to all the families of the earth. And most all of those families are not Jewish. Gentile, in other words. But God uses Israel, if you will, like a funnel of blessing to bring to all the families of the earth two things. Think about this. God used the Jewish people to give us the scriptures. The scriptures that you hold in your hand are written largely by Jewish people. And in fact, even the manuscripts of the original autographs were copied down by Jewish scribes. And they were written largely not only by Jewish people, but to other Jewish people. And even when you come to the New Testament, it's still written about Jewish-related issues. Thus, a book like Galatians or Colossians or even some things that we read about in the book of Romans will all be dealing with this issue about like, well, so what about things like the Sabbath day or uh, uh, eating meat that's been offered to idols or things that perhaps... We don't have to worry about much today. Jewish-related issues, because the original audience would have been Jewish. And so when a passage like this focuses in on God's plan for the Jewish people, many people might have that same experience that I remember having when I was looking at another family's photo album. I mean, I genuinely like people. I have lots of friends, and I stay in contact with them. I, I care about where they're going on their family vacation and such, but there are times when I've, uh, well, been in a place where I really don't know these people yet, but I notice here's their family album. And it might be kind of fun to see how they laid out their family album and what they include in their family photo album and, or even online as you're looking at their posts. And like. But personally, I can only be interested in for so long if I don't know them at all. Like, oh, here's a wedding with lots of people that I've never met. And here is a family vacation to a place I've never been. And here are a lot of people having a good time and I don't know any of them. Many people read the Old Testament like that. Have you ever thought of that? Like they're looking and they're reading and this is about Abraham, about Isaac and Jacob. And, you know, it. For for many, they might think that I might as well be reading American history, or history of the French Revolution, or history of some obscure people group that I don't know anything about. But I can tell you that I once had a strange experience looking at a family album, in which I was in none of the pictures, in which you know, there were a lot of people there I didn't know. But there I was, sitting in a home, waiting as the lunch was being prepared, and I was looking through a family album. And I began to see, wow, she was really cute, even way back then. And, oh, I didn't know she had... I didn't know she was in this sport. I didn't know she played this instrument. I didn't know... And I began looking at the family album differently because I began to see myself as potentially becoming connected to this family. It was my wife's family album. And now her parents are my in-laws and the grandparents of our children. I see myself in this family album even in a way where I was never in any of the specific photos in the family album. Perhaps that's how you can read the Old Testament and God's plan for Israel because it was through God's plan for Israel that the Messiah, who was foretold, Eventually came and his salvation message was made available to all the families of the earth. In fact, that's why eventually we're going to come to this theme in the passage about being grafted in. We'll wait just a moment for that, but you'll see it momentarily. In verse 11, Paul says that salvation is going to the Gentiles in order. To make Jewish people jealous. When he asks the question, so did they stumble in order that they fall, and answers it by no means, he goes on to say that rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. The so as gives us a purpose. For why God allows his promises, his blessings, which could have been experienced by Israel, to be experienced by those who were not Israel. Maybe we'd put it like this. Maybe you're noticing uh, that you're at a little party and you're about to serve the dessert. And then your child does something completely inappropriate. I'm sure your children would never do that, but we have some children and maybe once they could have done something you know that we weren't absolutely happy with and and so you might ask them to come aside for a little bit while you have a little chat and the other kids have their dessert first you can only imagine the intensity of their disappointment when they're seeing the other kids having their dessert first and they're standing aside unable to participate in the fun because you're having this little chat It is in a very similar way that the Lord in his divine plan is saying to Israel, let's have a little chat. Let's come aside for a moment and let the others go first in this blessing. You see, this is what Paul is speaking of here. Through there, the nation of Israel's trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Part of the reason you might have the little chat and let the other kids go first at that very moment is because this is the teachable moment. If you just spoke about it later at bedtime, you know, the moment could have been lost. The opportunity for them to feel, well, just a little bit of the seriousness of their decision would have been lost. But it's at this moment that you might take them aside and, you know, have that little conversation. In a similar way, as Israel is noticing that the pagan nations are worshiping the God of Israel? That the pagan nations are paying attention to the scriptures of Israel? That the pagan nations are enjoying the blessings that once were only enjoyed by the people of Israel? Surely, many have had to ask the question, what is going on with this? How could it be that... And perhaps you've had a Jewish friend asks you a question just like this. Why do you care what's said in my scripture? How is it that you know more about the Bible than I do? Why would you bother memorizing these prophecies which are written about in one of our prophets? And why would you trust in the Jewish Messiah as the one who came to give his life a ransom? Well, Paul is very clear about this. Salvation goes to the Gentiles so as to make Jewish people jealous. Further, in verses 12 through 15, we read, Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, let's stop there for a moment and note that Paul was living in a day which followed a very famous set of rabbis from Jesus' time, known as Rabbis Hillel and Shammai. These rabbis had huge influence within the Jewish communities, both within the land of promise, now mainly populated in Judea, around Jerusalem, but also in the Diaspora, uh, that area outside of the Promised Land, that area known as the places to which Jewish people had been scattered throughout the Mediterranean world and also in what today we would call the Middle East. Many Jewish people had stayed in Babylon and only a remnant, there's that word again, had returned. And among the Jewish community throughout the entire area... The approach of some rabbis seemed to be much more popular than others. Among these very popular rabbis was Rabbi Hillel, whose name means praise. Rabbi Hillel developed seven rules of interpretation. He had these approaches to help people better understand the scripture according to his approach. And one of his rules was known as the Cal de Homer approach. It means the light and the heavy. The de Homer rule says that what applies in a less important case will certainly apply in a more important case. A de Homer argument is often but not always signaled by the phrase, how much more. See if you can detect it in our passage. In verse 12 we read, that now if their trespass, meaning the fact that the Jewish people overwhelmingly have rejected Jesus' Messiahship and therefore trespassed or sinned, have fallen short, have violated God's plan of recognizing and worshiping the Messiah, now if their trespass means riches for the world, in other words, Look at the good things that have come to Gentiles because when God was passing out His salvation blessings, many Jewish people stepped to the back of the line and said, I'm, I'm really not interested, you go ahead. You see, if Israel's trespass results in the gospel spreading to Gentiles... how much more will their full inclusion mean? Let me illustrate this Kalva Homer principle here. You see, Paul is saying, if the fact that Jewish people have overwhelmingly, nationally rejected the gospel message, but this results in the good news that now salvation has spread to Gentiles, then how much more... Will there be blessings for even more Gentiles when Jewish people come in saving faith to receive the Messiah one day as God has promised? We continue reading that Paul says in verse 13, now I am speaking to you Gentiles. If you're curious about who his intended audience is, here he puts it in bold relief, if it weren't clear enough that he was writing this epistle to the Romans, I mean, in the capital city of the Roman Empire at Rome, so they were Gentiles. He says to them, I'm speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. Why would Paul want to emphasize his ministry of preaching the gospel to Gentiles when he himself is Jewish? You notice what he's arguing here? If more Gentiles come to saving faith, more Jewish people are going to ask, why would you care who the God of Israel is? Why would you care about who Abraham is, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, uh, King David? Why would you care about all of these promises that are given to the Jewish people when I don't care about them? Why are you worshiping the one true God when I'm not even so convinced? You see, God's plan is to, as Paul would magnify his ministry to the Gentiles, that the gospel would go to non-Jewish people and then just think about it. If this rejection of the gospel by the nation has resulted in this glorious salvation among Gentiles how much more will there be to celebrate when God brings salvation back to Israel and to the Jewish people, but even more blessings to even more Gentiles. And so Paul says he magnifies his ministry. We further read about how not only is there this great future in store for both Jews and Gentiles, but how not only salvation will go to the Gentiles, but salvation will also be restored for Israel. Look with me at verses 16 through 21. If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so the lump, the whole lump, And if the root is holy, so are the branches. He's here speaking in terms of some of the sacrificial offerings that would be presented at the temple. Some of those offerings were grain offerings of the first part of the harvest in their agricultural system. And you would bring these offerings to the priests to be waved before the Lord and then enjoyed by the priests as their grain. Further, these offerings that were part of the agricultural produce of the day not only were presented to the priests but offered before the worshiper would ever have a chance to enjoy them themselves because they were presenting them first to the lord so they're called here first fruits in other words it's as if god was having the worshiper bring the produce of the harvest first to him to be offered as a sacrifice but then in a similar way the lord was saying and guess who gave you that in the first place all the harvest belongs to the lord but you're just recognizing that i the lord gave it to you by bringing the first fruits similarly the first fruits are used here to be a reminder that the same quality that you have in what you're giving to the lord is very much like what the lord is going to bless you with with the rest of the harvest so the quality of that first fruits is going to also be enjoyed in the rest of the crops paul says here using this agricultural metaphor if the dough offered as first fruits is holy so the rest of the lump is holy and here he's speaking about using that grain to make bread uh, if you if you're using these ingredients then that's what the rest of the bread is going to taste like and he's going on to say that if the root of a tree is holy another illustration from the agricultural world so are the branches and why is he referring to this because he's now going to go on in verse 17 to say something about grafting and trees specifically and the olive tree most specifically verse 17 but if some of the branches were broken off and you speaking to the gentile believers in rome although a wild olive shoot were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree If that's what has happened to you, you see Jewish branches, the natural branches were broken off so that there could be a place made to put Gentile branches in who were considered wild, then don't be arrogant toward the branches, those natural branches, verse 18. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, verse 19... Branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true, Paul says, verse 20. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. This is the second time he has addressed this potential issue of Gentile pride, or what he calls earlier, arrogance. You see, because verse 21 concludes this section by saying, For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Take a look. Paul is saying that God's program of promising salvation to the Jewish people, but then allowing the Jewish people to not receive the Messiah, but to come aside for a bit so that the Gentile world can have the gospel preached to them, is not a reminder that God cares now not about Israel, but that he does care about Israel and will one day allow Israel to be back in the line of his blessing. God's program, then, is not a cause for pride among Gentile believers. See, notice these Jewish people who didn't trust the Messiah, but we did. Isn't it great that we believe? Isn't it great that we're trusting in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Isn't it great that we believe in these promises? Isn't it great that we believe in the scriptures? But they don't. You see, this is not a cause for pride. It's actually a cause for pride to worship God, to have a plan that none of us would have come up with. And to be reminded, verse 21, and let's be really clear about this verse because it is the source of some very misguided teaching. When Paul says, For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you, he's not speaking to an individual believer. He's speaking to a whole classification of believers, namely, Gentiles, Remember, that's to whom he addressed these words. And he's saying that Gentiles as a whole should avoid pride over the fact that now they are trusting in the Jewish promised Messiah. And he's saying that, now just think about this. If, because of Israel's disobedience, God broke off Israel as a nation from their own olive tree, from this plan of, redemptive history and salvation that was spoken about through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Those are their relatives, but they have nationally been broken off so that Gentiles could be grafted in. Then think about God's grafting work and how God will one day graft them again into their own olive tree. And as a result of this great plan, there should be no pride among those who are currently believing because if God broke them, meaning those natural branches off, he can easily break off the wild, unnatural branches. So let's not be prideful about our salvation blessings, our faith, which is a gift in the first place and not of ourselves. Let's never be pride about that, prideful about the fact that we are enjoying God's salvation blessings. We go on in this text to note Then, verse 22 to 24 the kindness and the severity of God severity toward those who have fallen but God's kindness to you provided that you continue in this kindness otherwise you too will be cut off and again this is not speaking about an individual losing their salvation this is speaking about that great work among Jews as a classification and Gentiles as a classification Gentile pride has no place in the light of Jewish rejection. Instead, Paul's plan, like Isaiah's counsel, would be that there would be mourning, a compassion toward the lost, a desire to see their salvation. Looking then further at these verses, we would note, verse 23, that, and even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in for God has the power to graft them in again. I mentioned to you that I already had the privilege of meeting at least two people of a Jewish background that are in the service today who are trusting in Jesus as their Messiah. Can I just let you know that that is not a strange thing. It is the most natural thing. I mean, the Hebrew scriptures predict that God is sending the Messiah. The Hebrew Scriptures tell us why we need a Messiah. The Hebrew Scriptures tell us what sin is and remind us of God's holy, holy, holy holiness. The Hebrew Scriptures are our first glimpse at what it means to trespass and sin against God. And the Hebrew Scriptures are those that give us the first glimmer of hope that God is going to undo the curse and crush the head of the serpent. The Hebrew scriptures are those that point toward the Messiah who would be born in Bethlehem, point toward the Messiah who would be a descendant of King David, point toward the fact that God already loves Gentiles and plans to bring his salvation to all the families of the earth. It's the most natural thing in the world then for a Jewish person to trust that the one person who was born a descendant of David in Bethlehem, as a result of the prophecies that spoke about him, and even was foretold about in the prophet Daniel in chapter 9, about exactly when the time would be that the Messiah would come, there's only one person whose fingerprints fit all of these prophecies, and it's Jesus of Nazareth. He's the one, he's the only possible Messiah who is foretold in the Hebrew scriptures. And so it is the most natural thing, as one t-shirt I saw says, Jesus made me kosher. It's the most natural thing to understand that it is the Jewish Messiah who brings salvation and for Jewish people to believe in him. We are then told, though, that when a Jewish person does come to faith, and when God brings salvation even nationally one day in the future as a result of his prophetic plan, it will not be that Jewish people are coming up with some new strange idea to think, I think I'm going to, why don't I believe in this Gentile religion called Christianity? No, it will be grafting them back into their own olive tree. That's what Paul calls it here. It will be as if they are coming home. Verse 24, for if you were cut off from that which is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more, there's another use of that rule by Rabbi Hillel, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back in to their own olive tree? You see, Paul is using this contrast between Israel and Israel and gentiles between the natural branches who see god's severity currently for not having trusted in the messiah they have stumbled but they are the cultivated tamed branches that naturally belong in his olive tree in his program of salvation the gentiles however are called grafted in branches that are seeing god's kindness they are the wild branches But they too, just like the natural branches, they are welcomed into the tree of God's salvation. Look with me at verse 25, which speaks about God's promise of restoration for Israel. We read here, yet another warning against ignorance, uh, arrogance, sorry, and against pride. Notice lest you be wise in your own sight, for I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. I love an older English translation that said, for I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren. I've jokingly said that that's the largest Christian denomination, you know, the ignorant brethren. Uh, Paul wants to have these believers avoid being ignorant brethren. He doesn't want them to be uninformed of what God is doing in the world among Jews and Gentiles. And he says in verse 25, lest you be wise in your own sight. In other words, another sense of arrogance. I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers, that a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. In verse 25, we have three words that clarify what is meant by God setting aside Israel. First of all, you'll notice the word Israel in the text. Partial hardening has come upon Israel. He means the nation as a whole. So it's speaking of a national hardening. But it's also speaking about a partial hardening that only a part of of the nation is being hardened and i mentioned there are many jewish believers even today and certainly paul gave multiple examples including his own self in the opening verses of this chapter there were many jewish believers in paul's day so while we might say that god has set israel aside so that salvation could go to the gentiles he hasn't set them all aside remember the remnant And further, not only is this hardening partial and national, it's also only temporal. Look with me at verse 25 again. Perhaps in circling, highlighting, underlining the words partial and Israel, you might also highlight, circle, or underline the word until. Because this is not the way it's going to be forever. It is only a partial hardening until... The fullness of the Gentiles comes in. Perhaps it would be helpful to illustrate the fullness of the Gentiles. You see, when Jesus died for our sins, rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and then sent his Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, the church begins. And the gospel spreads in Jerusalem and Judea in Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And in the uttermost parts of the earth, who do you think is there? Gentiles. And the nations are hearing about the Savior, the one born King of the Jews. And when the last Gentile comes to saving faith during this church age, the rapture takes place and Jesus returns in the clouds to catch away all of those who are his, those who are a part of the church. And it is if, have you ever used cruise control on the highway and You've got it set at your ideal speed. And then you notice something in the way, maybe someone coming on from an off-ramp. And so you tap the brake, and you slow down a little bit. Maybe you change lanes. But then you notice the wide-open spaces again, and you can hit that button. What's it called? Resume. And you just pick back up to your cruising altitude, if you will. You pick up to the speed that you were planning on all along, and things resume. That's exactly what's going to happen when the church is raptured and God deals with Israel again. He's going to resume all of His promises. Yes, the curses, but also the blessings, which is why we need a millennial kingdom in the future one day, but that's yet another story. If we're looking here at verse 25, we see that this hardening is only going to take place until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, at which point God will hit the resume button on his plan for israel look with me then if you will at these final verses god's saving of israel will be the fulfillment of the new covenant verses 26 and 27 and in this way all israel will be saved as it is written the deliverer will come from zion he will banish ungodliness from jacob this was his plan all along to bring salvation to the descendants of abraham isaac and jacob whose name was changed to israel And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. In other words, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to whom God gave these salvation promises in the first place. Why is this going to happen? Verse 29, For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Now, friends, I've asked you, you might want to highlight, circle, underline some key words This is another irrevocable. And it may be of particular encouragement to some of you today. Look, if Israel could have sinned badly enough to lose the promises that God had given, then you need to ask your question, how badly will you have to sin before you lose God's promises of salvation? You see how encouraging it is to know God Salvation depends upon God's faithfulness and not our faithfulness. His promises are irrevocable. Both his promises to Israel and his promises to us. I'm so grateful that God's promises are irrevocable. If salvation could be lost, I would have lost mine. And I think, I don't know you very well, but my guess is that if salvation could have been lost, you may have lost yours already too. You see, because if your salvation depends upon you and your faithfulness, no one is always having a great day, a great month, or even a great year. God loves sinners, and He, in His faithfulness, gives gifts and callings that are irrevocable. For just, verse 30 says, as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy. He's speaking to these Roman believers because of their disobedience. So they too have now been uh, been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. Do you notice the repetition of all? Who needs God's salvation? All of us. Who is worthy of receiving God's salvation? <laughs> Not all of us. None of us. But God in his mercy is willing to give his salvation that he may have mercy on all. When we come to the conclusion of this Magnificent argument that is made by Paul to see that God's salvation is not only a fulfillment of the new covenant promises, a display of God's faithfulness, but also an act of God's mercy. Then Paul concludes with a proclamation of praise to God with which we conclude today. He says, and we'll use this as our benediction, if you will, to worship God in light of his plan of salvation for both Jews and Gentiles. Verse 33 to 36. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how unscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been His counselor? In other words, who would have ever come up with this plan? Salvation promised to Jewish people, salvation rejected by Israel as a nation so that, all the gentile nations could have an offer of the gospel and of god's salvation and how it could go out to all the earth who would have come up with this no one or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever and ever amen You see, Paul says that God, he's the source of all things. All things come from him. He is the sustainer of all things. All things come through him. And he is the significance of all things. It is to him that all the praise and the glory belongs. I hope that as you think about God's grafting in plan and how it has included Jewish people, but how it also extends as an offer of salvation to all the families of the earth and how perhaps even you today are someone that God is inviting to be grafted in to the olive tree plan of his salvation. Even if you're a very wild branch that you think, there's no way I belong in God's salvation plan. If his salvation offer is clear to you today, He gave his son to die as a sacrifice for your sin. He rose from the dead victorious over sin and death, and he lives even now to make intercession for us. If you put your trust in him today, he would be saying to you, Welcome into the family. Welcome in.